with a lengthy hiatus in front of us, with at least five weeks away from you, this is Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Kuchri Kratka! Oh, everybody's going to miss that wonderful introduction because we are taking our first official summer vacation. We are. Yes, it's true. Uh, and it's about time. I think we're both overdue for summer vacation. Well, we usually, well, not usually, the last couple of years we've taken a bit of a festive season break. Right. And we've been able to cover up for it but because we have uh, stocked up on recordings at World Fantasy. Now, of course, we're not going to get to do that this year because I'm not going to go to World Fantasy um, for all sorts of good reasons. And that mm. means that probably we'll have a second hiatus as well come come Christmas. Which is entirely reasonable, I suppose, because we'll have some, we will have a few backed up, I hope, from Worldcom, but they will be used up well before Christmas, I suspect. They could well be. I mean, what I'm th thinking is, dear listeners, you may find that you'll get seasons of the, of the podcast for a while, because uh, we're not going to be stocking up for Christmas, and actually next year as well, there'll be a good hiatus when we both go to Finland. Finland. Absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, I'll go to the UK as well and go to Scotland and drink whiskey. Yeah. So, before we started uh, recording, you'd said, you know, you'd no real clear idea of what you wanted to talk about on the podcast. But I do, Gary, I think. You do. I do. So, bear you with do. me. Um, well, while, while, while we're bearing with you, I'll, shall I hum a tune? I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it now and then you'll be with me. It's okay. like. Okay. It wasn't a long bear with me. In ah. fact, it was probably shorter than this little bit about bearing with me was. All right. This is the kind of thing that people tune in for every week. I know. Oh, I'm afraid of those people. Anyway. Uh, okay. Ah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I got a random piece of email this week, and mm -hmm. it was advertising a very fancy schmancy looking PS publishing edition of Tom Remy's debut novel, Blind Voices. Now, mm -hmm. as long-time listeners to the podcast may be familiar, Tom Remy had a writing career that started, I guess, in the late 60s and continued until 1977 when he died of a heart attack at the age of 42. Very, very, very truncated career, unfortunately. Now, during that time, he published the one novel, which is P.S. Publishing's re you know, reissuing. And he also published a collection of short stories, San Diego, Lightfoot Sioux, and other Lightfoot stories. Right. Both of the books are essentially out of print and have been out of print for a long time. Um, now, uh, there are a couple of uncollected stories of, of Mr. Remy's, and Harlan Ellison has in his possession an unpublished novella mm -hmm. uh, called, if memory uh, sort of serves me, Potiphy, Petey, and Me which is a 17,000-word piece of, you would have to assume, pretty prime Tom Remy. I would imagine. Uh, and I know that a friend of the podcast, Bill Schaefer, has read the story and said it's really good. Uh -huh. And you've got to figure at some point it's going to get kicked loose. Uh, I mean, bit by bit, the stories from Last Age of Visions will be freed up, I think. They have been. Many of them have been, of course, and have been published. I mean, there are dozens that still haven't. Dozens and dozens. Well and, you know, some of them are treasures and some of them are best left on the scene, I assume. I suspect some of them are rather dated now, but some, I suspect, like the Tom Remy story, are, uh, I, I wouldn't know what to expect. He was a, 
I actually did not read his novel, but the short fiction was stunning yeah. uh, and very consistently high quality. Now, what this brings me to, because it joins up with something mm -hmm. else that I saw. Uh -huh. I was stumbling around and I saw on the Open Road Media website the listing for the nine-volume collected stories of Clifford D. Simak, mm -hmm. which is a rather clumsily introduced, rather poorly proofread set of e-books and print book, or POD books uh, that you can get if you want to get all of Cliff Simak's short stories. And kind of the point that I'm moving towards, and maybe you can see the shape of it a little, is with the mid-list dead, mm -hmm. how do we preserve writers' works for the future? And should we expect the marketplace to do so? For a long time, well, not for a long time, for a while, I used to go around arguing that it would be wonderful if Del Rey would reissue their Best Off series. Yeah, in the mm -hmm. 70s and into the 80s, they published yeah. a whole string of volumes. And as I'm now you know, familiar, because I've spoken to people at Del Rey about this, the reason that they do not is not a lack of interest, is not a lack huh? of willingness. It's that, the first of all, the licensing and contract stuff surrounding a lot of those books is very complicated. Yes. And... Um, there's no real market, so you'd have to build the market. So rather than cr criticizing particular publishers, which we're not going to do, do you think we should be preserving you know, those, sorts, those sorts of works? And should we be promoting writers who's, who are either have ended their careers or who have disappeared from view to newer readers? I think there are two answers to that question, and one is speaking as a scholar and academic, as well as a long-time reader, I think we should preserve everything. Everything should be available. The problem is that there are the two extremes here, one represented possibly by the open road, but also represented by a North Atlantic edition of Sturgeon, for example. There is the collector specialist readership, the kind of people who go to PulpCon and this sort of thing, who want everything preserved. They want all the short fiction of Clifford Simak. And that's not very realistic for somebody who wants an introduction to Clifford Simak. You need a best of. You need a selection. of. That's where the market comes in. The problem is that apparently the market now is not interested at all, even in the best stories of deceased or retired writers. So what we need is a middle ground. And to some extent, that middle ground has been successfully exploited by people like our friend Bill Schaefer, for example. One of the books that, uh, uh, that, that you edited, The Best of Fritz Leiber, for example. Um, th th there's not going to be a huge market in it, but the point is, if somebody goes to The Best of Fritz Leiber or The Best of Gregory Benford for a, a writer who's, who's still functioning uh, very well, I should say, not functioning, but he's still... Greg Benford, uh, he's going to kill me for this. But the problem is that the collector's editions are of no value to anybody but collectors. And I, the, the complete stories of Clifford Simak, I'm fairly certain, in, are going to include a lot of stories that Simak himself would never have put in one of his collections. Oh, sure. So, so you have a problem. That's only of interest to scholars, and there aren't enough scholars to sustain a market. There's not going to be a mass market paperback audience for Tom Remy 
or for Clifford Simak, or for Charles Beaumont, any number of writers we can come up with. So we need this middle ground, and the middle ground, I think, is being somewhat satisfied by the small presses, by the PS, the subterraneans, and so forth. You don't think so? I don't think so at all. I mean, I think there's at least three discrete markets, and you've touched on them. There's the more academic market who want access to material for academic purposes, and that's perfectly mm -hmm. legitimate. Well, that and to some degree, a author mill like Open Road, who mm -hmm. just put out everything, fulfill that need. That gives them cheap, easy access to the text, which is what they need. That's great. Oh, yeah. That's true. And then you have the collector's market, which does nothing at all to grow a reader's, a, 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 an author's audience. No. Uh, and that is your PS publishing who are doing like 250 copies or something of the uh, Tom Remy book, mm -hmm. or it's uh, Subterranean Press, who I love and respect, but who do 500 or 1,000 copies, and they sell them at a reasonable premium kind of a price to a market that's already committed to that author. Mm. You know, for example, no one's going to buy the Subterranean Press edition of the best of Alistair Reynolds to find Alistair Reynolds. It'll be because no. they already want an Alistair Reynolds book. That's a good point. So then, and, and there's nothing wrong with either of those markets. They're fine. I'm not critical. It's the third market. that The way you find a way to make it available to a mass audience and promote it in a reasonable way. Now, I can only think of one example, and I actually had sort of, it crossed my mind to try and get the person involved onto the podcast, and we may or may not in the future, because uh, I was thinking about our friend Darren Nash. Now, mm -hmm. Darren, as you know, is intimately involved at Golance with the SF Gateway. Yes. And the SF Gateway is interesting because it does provide access to older texts in a fairly managed way. And it links up with their masterpieces or masterwork series, which puts those books out into stores. And that's, that's great. I don't see an equivalent of that at this point in the United States. And I don't know if there is a reasonable likelihood of that ever happening. But, you know, I wonder, I mean, Bain, actually, Bain do a good job of repackaging and presenting older work to newer readers. They do keep mm -hmm. Heinlein in print right now. They keep some Paul Anderson in print, some other stuff like that. Um, I have wondered if there's actually a role for a non-profity, voluntary fan kind of group to put to 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 kickstart and put together marketing material to send out to independent bookstores to use to promote particular writers. Now, how is this going to be different from different different from what Nesfa is doing now? Nesfa produce mass wonderful books. But they produce, mm -hmm. but they produce thirty-five dollar hardcovers that are aimed at sure. an insider market. You know, yeah, sure. Nesfa is a wonderful, wonderful part of our field. So I'm not being critical, but most of the books are not going to be the book that somebody picks up. I mean, when I picked up a copy of San Diego Lightfoot Sue, I picked mm -hmm. it up for six bucks, right? Right. I didn't pick it up for twenty-five bucks. If I'm going to go out to a store in Perth and buy a book and I'm mm. 17 right I'm more likely to spend 16 or 17 dollars on a paperback than I am on 55 Australian dollars or 60 Australian dollars for a collectible hardcover which is what the Nesfa book is that's true but you've made one at least in the states false assumption already you're talking about a 17 year old going into a bookstore well, that I mean, would be a newsworthy item here in Chicago. Well, 
first of all, I don't believe that's at all true. I think you're following a fictitious assumption. I will always now go back to the panel that I was at at LUNCON uh, in 2013 in London when mm -hmm. they had a bunch of young readers on a panel with my daughter and they were talking about ebooks versus print books. And of the five kids there, four of them would only read print. And one of them talked really? about how the local bookstore was like a, a social meeting place for them. She and her friends would go there and they, they wouldn't, you know, and even in fact, m my youngest daughter who goes to you know, high school now, uh -huh. she has found that her friends will trade paperbacks amongst themselves, but they don't trade electronic books. It's interesting, but I think you're talking about a self-selecting group there also. Look, maybe. But what I'm trying to work out, first of all, is, is there a mechanism to promote uh, older work, to keep it visible? Uh, and I think I could see a thing where if, if you can persuade publishers to publish books, and if someone's going to help them promote them, maybe that will work. I mean, uh -huh. certainly... Certainly one thing I see, and I was talking to a bookseller about this this week, is there's a terrible endemic problem in and around the center of the science fiction community. And it's the they order uh, uh, syndrome. They ought to do this. This ought to exist. You know, right. someone ought to do a trade edition of San Diego Lightfoot Sioux and other stories. And you go, okay, I will do this. You know, I'm a small press. I can POD it. I will now do you know, a, a, a nice edition of San Diego Late Foot Sioux. I'll talk to Harlan. I'll get the novella. I'll add it in. I'll make it, I'll make it all the stories of Tom Remy. Everyone will love me and I'll sell oh. thousands of copies. And I print them and I put them on a table and people walk past and go, I'm really happy that exists. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I'm not going to buy one though. Which people are going to say this? I mean, you're talking about a writer who is, who, who, who is, I hate to use the term of flash in the pan. He was a very hot writer for about 10 years. And I'm guessing that very few readers, very few listeners to this podcast, under the age of 50, have any idea who Tom Remy was. That's missing the point, Gary. It's not about Tom Remy. It's about a book. There are all kinds of books, projects that people go around talking about as being important and worthwhile and worthy and necessary. Yeah. And when they actually get produced, they don't buy them. Well, I think that's part of the problem. Why would somebody... The, the Part of the problem is creating a kind of culture that still reads back. I'm not sure that... The, 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 we've talked about this before, that, that, that we know younger readers. Uh, there are people that, that you and I are probably, in some sense or another, mentored who wanted to learn about the history of science fiction. David Hartwell used to love to take young people around and say, you should be reading this paperback by Tom Remy. Um I don't. I think the people who are interested in in that kind of learning the field uh, are getting fewer and fewer generation after generation. Uh, secondly, I think the way to start an experiment like this, and there have been experiments outside of the specialty press here. There was a vintage uh, in the middle of the North Atlantic um, Sturgeon edition. There was a vintage collection of Theodore Sturgeon published as a mainstream book. A few years ago, I think it was the New York Review Press published a collection of Robert Sheckley stories, uh, which Jonathan Lethem wanted to promote to a, to a newer audience. I don't know how well they did. My sense is they didn't do very well because the intent of both of those books was not to make the books available to younger or newer or, or, or science fiction readers in general. 
the intent of those books was to reach outside the genre and say, look, here's a major short story writer you don't know about. Um, Sheckley might have done reasonably well because there have been a couple of movies based on his works. But I'm, my sense is that those things probably didn't do very well because we haven't seen other experiments like that since then. There have been small press experiments of a couple of years ago. Uh, Aqueduct put out a collection of stories by, by Chan, uh, Chandler Davis. Chan Davis. Chan Davis, yeah. Uh, another writer, very uh, well-respected in the 50s, virtually forgotten today. I suspect that by the standards of Aqueduct's publications, it didn't do substantially worse than others, but we're back to the same problem you're talking about of 250 or 300 copies. Okay, but okay, we're, we're popping around here a little bit, and that's fine. The Sean Davis example is a different kind of a thing. and I'll tell you why I think the Sean Davis thing is a challenge. Hmm. Only a niche group of people had ever heard of Sean Davis. That's true. So if you want to get people interested in Shan Davis, you need to promote and market and explain why. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't really happen. And that's not a criticism of Aqueduct. They are an independent publisher with limited resources. But that's the kind of thing. It's like, let's say I was going to attempt to promote Tom Remy to a broader audience. I mean, mm -hmm. the book that PS Publishing is doing is interesting and lovely. And the people who remember Tom Remy will buy one and... It'll disappear from the world, and that'll be that. Right. But I could see, okay, buy the Tom Remy novella if it's good. Publish it on Tor.com. That could be interesting. That sort of thing would be very interesting. And then, having published it on Tor.com, right, uh, see it get collected somewhere else, re uh, arrange, go to, say, Clark's World and Lightspeed, who do reprints, pop, reprint an old story here and there, Mm -hmm. uh, pull out a couple of old interviews, print them somewhere, put up together a website, then put out a book. Try and get some kind of overall you know, sort of discussion of the author happening. I mean, this is this relates to a, a separate thing about the managing of um, literary estates and the, and why Bob Silverberg <laughs> is right and everybody else is wrong, right? Bob Silverberg is right. He basically will let anybody reprint a story of his for whatever the market price is because he wants to be read. If you're read, you're published, you're not forgotten. Bob's not for, not not forgotten now. I don't think Bob will be. But some of these other authors, particularly ones who don't have the the current um, audience, don't have anybody to do this for them. And so there's that kind of need to do that <laughs> sort of outreach and structure it. Now, I guess the corollary question is, and I've touched on it before, is if you set if you set aside the fan community and the archival community uh -huh. do we need to is this an act of ego and hubris to suggest that it's necessary i, know, I, I would not argue that it's necessary uh, because necessary for whom uh, I, I i don't want to get into the argument well here are writers that you ought to read because then we're back to this prescriptive notion you can't understand science fiction unless you've read tom remy which is obviously absurd uh i do think that um, you can call attention, possibly through Tor.com, to writers that might generate some interest, but you're not going to keep their careers alive unless they stay alive on their own. There, well, one thing I wanted to say about the business of, of States versus Bob Silverberg, the key difference between Bob Silverberg and a lot of the people we're talking about is that Bob is alive and very active and very savvy and very smart. 
what happens when authors die, and I've run across this more than once now, uh, is that the survivors frequently are not literary people. Frequently the executor of the estate might not, might not be anybody who knows the field. And they almost always overestimate the importance of that particular writer. And uh, I will give you one example, which is a personal experience, and since the family members are barely connected to his estate, now it's, um, it's, it's, it's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. But, the, but, the, but Philip Jose Farmer uh, was enormously successful. He was the leading science fiction writer in the country in the early 80s when the River World novels were in the third and fourth volume. He's getting features in Time magazine. From the point of view of the family, that was who he is. And 20 or 30 years later, when he essentially retired from writing, the family still felt that way. So almost always, it seems to me, literary estates and the agents representing literary estates overestimate the commercial value of the properties they control. I can understand that. I, I can also see that it's uh, the agents and executors' obligation to do so a little bit. Well, it's, it's an obligation to do so unless the effect of it is to basically put that particular author out of print and into obscurity, which I think has happened and is happening. Well, I suppose the thing that I come across when I've interacted with some estates is the, the fact that the people who have control of the estate don't necessarily have a good understanding of what the marketplace is like, and they don't understand when they're being <laughs> made a standard market offer, you know. These days, if, you get, if you've got an old reprint story and you're offered two cents a word for it, eh, that's reasonable. Yeah. You know, um, and if you want to hold out for $2 a word, you're probably kidding yourself. Well, and this is, this is the point. that I've, I've, I've talked to people, or directly or indirectly, who were thinking, wow, wait a minute, in, in, in 1979, we could get $2 a word. Why can't we do that now? Market moved on. Well, that's the point. The market has moved on, and with Bob keeping up with what's going on, he, Bob is, as, as we've said before, he's probably one of the shrewdest businessmen in the history of science fiction writing. He knows how to manage his career. He knows as much, if not more, than, uh, the, than the agents and publishers he works with. But, and, 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 and to be honest, if, if something, God forbid, were to happen to Bob, Karen would be pretty good about that, too. But most families we've dealt with, uh, with, with Locus now owns the um, estate of Ari Lafferty, but you remember the kind of confusion that was, resulted in a massive number of family members who had no idea what they had there. Yeah. Uh, so that is more the rule than the exception, I think. That's probably so. That's probably so. Let me ask you a, uh, a related question, mm -hmm. or, or at least make a related observation. Uh, I was asked some questions for an article earlier in the week. And mm -hmm. one of the questions I was asked was, did I think that writers today read the history of the field? Mm -hmm. And the answer I gave, which I think is correct, is that they do, they just don't read the history that you think they read. That's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Because <laughs> I don't think they read as far back. But they're further into the future, if that makes sense. I mean, when I was 20 years old in 1984, if I read back to 40 years, I was reading back to the 1940s and the Golden Age. Mm -hmm. If you're 20 years old today and you read back 40 years, you're reading back to the 90s. Right. Or the 80s or something. Well, 
So you're dealing with people who are kind of aware of the late 70s, they're aware of the 80s, they're aware of the 90s, whatever else. They're just not aware of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And you're basically, we beat up on them for not being aware of the distant past. I think that's true. And I think it's something we've talked about before, that there are very effective younger writers who feel no need whatsoever to read Heinlein and Asimov. And if, if you force them to read Heinlein and Asimov, um, they're going to see the flaws more than the virtues because the idea of inventing a concept or, uh, or, 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 or a style or a method of world building doesn't seem quite as innovative unless you're interested in literary history. I would make one additional correction to what you said, though. I think that the writers today, um, a lot of the ones I know, they read back very selectively. In other words, I don't think there's a sense that, okay, you need to understand the pulp era, you need to understand Wells, and you need to go back further, you need to understand Vern. I think at some point you find writers, relatively younger writers, who discover some things that really uh, engage them passionately, but that may not be uh, a broad representation of the field. And let me give you an example of, uh, of a writer uh, who I've, we've already mentioned, who strikes me as being one of these people has been plucked out of the past by any number of younger writers, and that's Fritz Leiber. Uh, I just finished reading uh, Joe Abercrombie's Sharp Ends, and he's clearly doing, in five of those stories, a version of Fofford and the Grey Mouser. Uh, the same sort of, and, and Michael Swanwick has his version of Fofford and the Grey Mouser. I've talked to Chyna Diego about his, uh, his love of uh, Clark Ashton Smith, for example, for heaven's sake. Uh, and we've already seen how many writers these days, this year, are, are, are sort of grappling with Lovecraft. So I don't think there's a sense of trying to read a continuous history of the field. But I think there is a sense out there that there are really fascinating things in the past that, uh, that will be useful for contemporary writers' uh, uh, work. I mean, China Miebel has read a lot of early of pulp fiction, 30s and 40s and that sort of thing, but not... Not everything. He hasn't read all of the kind of classic Campbell-era science fiction. He's read stuff that interested him. And the stuff that interested him was more like weird tales than it is like uh, astounding. So short, short version of the answer is uh, I think people do read history, but they read history in the same way any writer of any kind of fiction finds their antecedents by reading a lot of stuff and discarding most of it and passionately engaging with some other parts of it. I think that's, that, that sounds you know, reasonable and plausible to me. I mean, I, well, look at, look at Neil Gaiman. Uh, I, another book I recently looked at was his um, collection of um, nonfiction, The View from the Cheap Seats. He's read very widely in the field, but it's also clear that he's attracted to certain writers, uh, Lafferty, Liber, um, to some extent, uh, Lovecraft to some extent, writers that he finds useful for his fiction. No. I don't think you're going to see an Arthur C. Clarke story coming from Neil Gaiman's pen. Well, no, I wouldn't expect it either. I mean, but the thing is, I mean, Neil's, Neil's my generation. The question is, you know, you look at things like, or people like um, Carol and Joachim or mm -hmm. Rich Larson or um, Kelly Robeson or whoever else who are younger, who are 15, 20 years younger, oh, yeah. uh, they're going to be inspired by different people, and that's fine. Um, and maybe what a lot of this is is a nostalgia for a marketplace that doesn't exist anymore. The world has basically eradicated 
the mid-list publishing market. We've talked about that before too. Mm-hmm. And the kind of you know, authors we're talking about, the kind of programs like the Delray Best Of program, existed in a world where the library market, where the mid-list um, could support them and they, they could be viable, and where there were large networks of bookstores to make them available. Exactly. Now we live in a world where you have digital marketplaces and it just seems like there's an, you know, like this publishing is invisible. I mean, most people probably aren't aware there's nine volumes of Clifford Simek stories now available, three volumes of the collected uh, Greg Bear available, and so mm-hmm. on and so on and so on and so on. Because they uh, get no profile. Well, and the, 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 the persistence of the mid-list in, in bookstores, uh, a good example of, uh, of why this kind of consensus history of the field lasted for so long was not only... Uh, the, the, the Ballantine Best of series, uh, but things like the Modern Library, like Adventures in Time and Space, which retitled by the Modern Library uh, as famous science fiction stories, was in bookstores continually for something like 40 years. So two or three generations of readers going into a bookstore would find this book because the Modern Library was, was, was stocked in every uh, bookstore of any size. And so you'd have generation after generation encountering these same stories. And for that matter, at the same period when you're talking about the, uh, the Best of series, there were a lot of historical anthologies, the Hugo Winners anthologies, great science fiction of the 1930s, great science fiction of the 1940s. All these things were around, and they were around for you know, a couple of years at a, at a time. So, so that kind of market is just not there. If you go into a bookstore now and look for any historical anthology of science fiction, you might, if you're lucky, find the Vandermeer's anthology, and that's about it. But it's probably true, and I've not been in a, an American bookstore really in any serious way in a while, but it's probably true that if you go into an American bookstore, which you mostly get in the science fiction and fantasy sections, mm-hmm. is work that's either published in the last 24 months, mm-hmm or work that has been repackaged in the last 24 months. Right. And Something so, look- you know, those older kind of bookstores that I feel nostalgic for, where you would go in and you'd find rafts and rafts and rafts of books. And the impression I get, and this might not be correct, uh, the, the kind of secondhand bookstores you used to find that had eras worth of old books in them are largely mm. disappearing. They're gone. I mean, it's very difficult to find. And, and the, the, the idea of the comprehensive bookstore, which was for a while at the beginning of, of Borders and Waterstones was trying to do the same thing in England. I can actually remember the first time I encountered a Borders. And for some reason, I don't even recall, it was in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'd read about them. There were, there were not any Borders bookstores in Chicago. And I, so we pulled off the highway into the shopping mall and went into a Borders, which at that time had every single Arkham House book in print in the store. And this was not a major uh, regional center. This was a bookstore in a suburban mall in Indianapolis. That kind of bookstore, where we're going to keep everything that's relevant to science fiction readers, everything that's relevant to romance readers, everything that's relevant to Western. And that, first of all, became impossible and clearly was not a long-term model for sustaining a bookstore. Uh, so, so those things just went away. I mean, the idea of discovering science fiction in a bookstore these days is, I can't see how you'll do it. I mean, I could see how you do it in the few used bookstores, but to walk into the Barnes & Noble down the uh, street from me, it's exactly as you described. It's books that have 
been repackaged, republished, reprinted within a, within the past year. And a few books that will stay on the shelf forever are, are books like Ender's Game and um, uh, and, and David Eddings and uh, Shannara books and this sort of thing. I guess the I guess the the thing that's changed most in my mind is that everything's available but nothing's discoverable. This is the problem I have, uh, and, and this is something I'm glad you said that because uh, the dis. It, it, it's, a set, it, it's essentially the same thing in, in teaching undergraduate students how to use the library. One of the great uh, sort of um, epiphanies you could have doing research for a paper was going to the library and finding through the call through the card catalog, you'd find the number of the book on your shelf, and then you'd look around on the shelf, and there'd be a lot, a lot of more interesting books. And the same thing used to be true in bookstores. When you'd walk into a bookstore and you think, okay, I want to read, um, you know, the, the, the new novel from, let's say, Al Reynolds, and you see, you know, um, three or four books by people you've never heard of that look really interesting. And here's a copy of A Canticle for Leibowitz up there, for example. And you think, okay, I'll grab that one and try it too. I don't think that happens much anymore. No. Uh, I, think, I think the book market now is directed by knowing what you want and going online and getting it. Yes, very much. I mean, for example, I mean, this is a good example to me. If you went into any spe even specialist bookstore, unless it's a really exceptional one, I mean, if you go into a crazy store like, say, let's say you're in, in San Francisco and you go across mm -hmm. to Berkeley and you go to Dark Carnival, the depth of material there is ridiculous. You would discover most things you'd want. But I would bet that if you went into nine out of ten bookstores tomorrow, you wouldn't find a single Avram Davidson book. No. But I could go online and I could buy 15 of them, uh, some of them which have never been really available in accessible print editions before, for a few bucks. Or less than that. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I discovered uh, when I was doing preparing this series of lectures, and I needed a book which I knew I had, but it was my storage locker. And I would sort of do this mental calculation. I can go to the storage locker, unpack these boxes, find it, and come back with it. Or I can go online and find the same book for 25 cents plus a dollar and 50 postage. Yeah. Uh, so, and if you're willing, so to, pretty if much you're willing to put up with an electronic edition, you can get it for next to nothing. Sometimes I used electronic editions and, and, and got it for next to nothing. Uh, it's, it's amazing what has, you know, entered into the public domain, and uh, this is happening with Lovecraft now, it'll be interesting. But the point is, that only works if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, and, and the algorithms that, that places like Amazon use, if you like this, you will like that, aren't the same thing. Because the point of discovering a book is discovering something you didn't know you would like until you saw it on the shelf. Yeah. So people who bought, you know, people who bought... Uh, China Medieval also bought Avram Davidson, which I don't think is an actual Amazon algorithm. Uh, was, they're never accurate. Whenever Amazon tells me what else I'd like to read, they're almost always dead wrong. <laughs> so, 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 so the sense of you know the sense of discovering Tom Remy for to go, go back to the original thing. How would you, how would you find out that you wanted to read Tom Remy? Would you take I, I don't think you could. Or yours, you, you, or that's one of those things. Or? What? 
Do you, do you decide I, th- I should probably read Tom Reedy because Pete Crowley thinks I should read Tom Reedy? I think the answer to that question is you need somebody who recommends it to you. You know, you need a friend or whatever right. else it is who goes, well, if you like Ray Bradbury and you want to see how that evolved and began to overlap with the mad kind of uh, work of, say, Tom Robbins, Tom mm-hmm. Tom Remy is is a step in between. Yeah. And in another sense, he seems like a very 60s writer by today's I'm day. sure, yeah, yeah. So you don't know. And look, I'm talking to you about Tom Remy, and the only reason I've thought about Tom Remy, this is the first time... I've thought of that Tom Remy probably in a decade and a half or two decades. And it's only um, because I got an email in my inbox. Yeah, it, 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 that, that's the sort of thing that happens. You mentioned the uh, an announcement of the open road Clifford Simak sort of thing. And I actually, I have been thinking about Clifford Simak for reasons that, that we probably talked about uh, in terms of his novels, but not in terms of his short fiction. And yet uh, there are certain Clifford Simak stories that I think a lot of young writers and a lot of young readers, uh, or I shouldn't say young, because readers who are new to the field could really benefit from. My problem there is that if you've got nine volumes, how is anybody supposed to know which six or seven key stories are the ones that they will find most useful and most uh, helpful in terms of their writing point of view? One of the things, for example, I've talked to uh, people in the academic world, one of the things going on in the academic world right now is animal studies. Yeah. And animal studies, there have been a couple of anthologies of animal studies uh, trying to look at the point of view of animals, trying to talk about... Uh, and so there's a lot of stuff about Sherry Tepper, for example. But, you know, from that perspective, one of the early classic animal studies stories in science fiction was Simak's Desertion, yeah. which became part of City, which is largely told from the point of view of a of a dog. Um, that sort of thing is, I think, fascinating. It would be fascinating for any number of readers who are following this current trend to see that there are versions of it that go back that far. But who's going to say, out of these nine volumes of Semak, that's a story you ought to read, and maybe this one over here is a story you ought to read, and, and, and maybe that one. The problem with the Sturgeon volumes was that they were published in the chronological order of the stories of appearance which means that the first couple of volumes were very minor Sturgeon stories that nobody had ever heard of. And if yeah. anybody was really trying to learn about Sturgeon from that, they'd have to wait until volume three or four to find the stories that made his reputation. It's true. Do you think there's a place for reprint magazines online? Oh. You mean a magazine that's devoted to reprints? Yeah, there is one. I tend not to think about it because I'm mostly reading for other things, but there certainly is one. Um, I, I, I hope that's very valuable. Uh, but again, the problem is what's being reprinted and why? This is one of the values of anthology. Okay, but is that reprinting? Uh, is that overthinking it? I mean, right now, Neil Clark of Clark's World uh, mm-hmm. is actually editing two magazines. Were you aware of that? I was not aware of that. I was certainly aware of Clark's World. Uh, he also uh, reprint. Uh, he also is the editor for Forever, a science fiction reprint magazine. Mm-hmm. Now, I, it's interesting because you know I don't hear much about it, but at some of the stuff, a lot of the stuff he's reprinting is quite recent. On you know, uh-huh. but it you know, he's put out seventeen issues of it, and I don't know what he pays for his reprint rate. But it's one marketplace at least that's bringing stuff together. Um, 
and mm. you'd have to mostly stuff actually it's interesting as a reprint magazine it's almost all look at the tables of contents now it's almost all stuff from the 2000s or even maybe 90s maybe yeah uh not stuff that goes back to say the 70s or 60s well um, uh, and this is one of the things i think is uh it, it, it's a problem because i suspect that that neil being of a younger generation than than, than i am at least is is reprinting things that he might remember or be aware of, but not interested in trying to represent the history of the field. And I'm not sure that reprint magazines ought to be doing that anyway. I think mm -hmm. the argument about Tom Remy is that that is a certain kind of writing that represented, you're right, something that happened after Bradbury, but before Richard Brodigan and Thomas Pynchon and, 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 and the kind of American new wave things that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, there's got to be a specific reason for wanting to read a particular writer. One of the ones I would like to see more available, which is getting a little bit further away from the science fiction end of things, is one I mentioned a few minutes ago, Charles Beaumont. Charles Beaumont is a very important figure in the sort of what people now think of as the Twilight Zone kind of creepy story that somewhere is you know beyond Bradbury and not quite into modern horror and very kind of uh, existentially bleak in its outlook. Um, and there are certain stories of his that people would recognize, um, probably if they saw them in print. There are stories that have become memes, virtually, and people don't know the original story behind them. Yeah. The, 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 for example, there's the um, Jerome Bixby story. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good life. Um, Bixby had a number of very good short stories, some of which have been made into films. That one's been filmed at least two or three times in various forms. Um, and yet people tend not to be aware of the story. There are any number of Frederick Brown stories that have entered the world as anecdotes and jokes, and people don't realize, okay, this was a short, short story by, by Frederick Brown. It was 700 words long, and it was actually published, and then later it entered, um, it entered popular culture or folklore. So things like that I think people would find fascinating. FNSF, every once in a while, I don't know if they still do, runs this column on uh, obscure things you ought to know about. Yeah. That was always very useful in terms of calling attention to those things, but it didn't actually bring the story to your attention. It just said, you, you might want to go look at this. Yeah. I guess one of the things with all of this stuff is there's no, sol there's no solution to it. We, we live in, a mar in, a, in an environment where there's an awful lot of material out there. We're all surrounded by books. Digital stuff flies past faster than we're ever going to actually keep track of. But, you know, I mean, given that, you know, Neil has Forever, which is this, you know, science fiction reprint magazine for reasonably recent mm -hmm. reprints, I wouldn't mind seeing someone try a reprint magazine for old, older science fiction, for fantasy, uh, just to try and mix it up and see if, if you know, writers would, would resonate with a younger audience. This has been done in the past, and there were... There were magazines, there were pulp magazines uh, in the late 40s and early 50s that seemed almost designed to to educate a new generation of readers to the, to the older classics. I'm sure that I'm thinking, the famous fantastic mysteries and fantastic novels and the Ace Fantasy, Avon Fantasy Reader, these were all largely reprint magazines. I'm sure one of the reasons they could succeed was because in those days you paid virtually nothing for reprint rights. Um, but there were writers, you know, like Seabury Quinn and, and, and Lovecraft and Wandre and that sort of thing, 
who sometimes came to people's attention because of these reprint magazines, which seemed to be pretty successful for a while. Um, I don't know if that kind of magazine could, su could succeed today because fiction magazines of any sort are having a hard time succeeding today. But if it could succeed, it might do it online. Yeah. Well, we shall see. You know, we shall see. I mean, the same, pro the same problem exists in academia. And, and my argument going back to Joe Abercrombie and his obviously having read Fritz Leiber, I would love to ask Joe how he stumbled across Leiber. How did... Uh, Okay, Michael Swanwick is old enough that he probably grew up with it, but how do people find the stories that they like? How do people find novels that um, that somehow resonate with them when they want to do something with it, even though that novel may have never been commercially viable? Yeah. Another example, I've got somebody coming through here from, I believe, Scotland in a couple of weeks who's going to interview me, God knows why, about David Lindsay, the author of A Voyage to Arcturus. Um a Voyage to Arcturus, as far as I can tell, has never been out of print since 1920, and yet it's never been remotely successful. It's never been a well-known book. But you look at the number of writers who have discovered it, all of them thinking they discovered it completely on their own, uh, who have been uh, vastly influenced by it. Bob Silverberg is one of them. Uh, Phil Farmer was another one. Uh, how, do, how do people find these things? I don't know. I mean, my um, guess with, with Joe, who's what, is, is 40 years old or so, uh, hmm. And is so ten years younger than me, probably encounters Liber when he's in his teens. So you know, late nineteen eighties. He's in his teens in the nineteen eighties in, in in the UK. And what is available of Fritz Liber there? I all, don't know. all of the Fafnir and Grey Mouser books are available. Oh, they were in print in England then. Physically in print, absolutely. Oh, okay, that's, that's important. Joe is also of that generation, and we've touched on this. And it's not something you and I are familiar with particularly. Part mm -hmm. of that generation that's massively influenced by role pl role play games, right? And the fantasy role playing game community always acknowledged that link to Robert ha Robert E. Howard and to Fritz Leiber. Mm. So presumably that's how he he got to them. I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess. Well, and I suspect there might be some, at least with Howard, there might be some blowback from the Conan movies and so forth, and the Conan comic books and the Conan. Uh, you're right, the online gaming community and so forth and so on. Uh, so so that that could be a way of getting back to him. But how do you, how would a writer today, you mentioned, uh, well, we started with Tom Remy, you mentioned Avram Davidson, we could talk about Clifford Simak, we could talk about, um, I don't know, Walter M. Miller. How would a young writer today find that a canticle for Leibowitz even exists? It would have to be an act of either per personal, recommend, personal research or you know, where you're deliberately going, I will go and find the classics, I will read an awards list, I will do whatever. Or mm -hmm. a friend who, happened, who stumbled across it before you and recommends it. Yeah. And, and that's going to give you a kind of random notion of what the canon is. We've talked about before how everybody's canon is a personal canon. Let's say you're interested in religion and science fiction in some way, or you're interested in nuclear war fiction, or you're interested in the intersection of those things you'd end up with a canticle for Leibowitz. Uh, on the other hand, if, you're, if your friend, if your mentor, your senior friend, is a generation younger, they might very well recommend that you read Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow, which is probably actually a better novel about religion than a canticle for Leibowitz is. Yep. So it's, it, it just depends on what you get recommended. 
still people can go out and spend a buck and get a copy of San Diego Lightfoot Sioux if they if they're interested. Well, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. When somebody reprints a book like that and and, and you start getting a buzz about it, um, I, I I am surprised at how seldom I've been disappointed by going on ABE or even now if if you go on Amazon, it'll it'll send you to other um, uh, you know book dealers for books that are out of print. It, it is unfortunate that none of Tom Remy's stuff is available digitally, though. Mm. That is generally a problem, yeah. So, uh, let, let me ask to switch topics a second. Uh-huh. There's, this, there's nowhere really else to go with this. Okay. And we are faced with hiatus. Uh, before we go, first of all, what have you been reading lately? I've been reading, uh, well, I've, I, I just mentioned to you before um, we started that because I'm actually having a couple of weeks here in the middle of summer without major deadlines and without travel, I've been reading all kinds of interesting things. There's a book which I probably won't get to review, but which we've mentioned before, uh, by Indra Das called The Devourers, which was published in India last year, was actually a finalist for the Crawford Award this year, and is really fascinating. Um, another book which I probably won't review, and I will apologize to Elizabeth Hand right now, it's a mystery novel. It's a terrific mystery novel. I read both of the Castaneri novels, um, which are bleak and unremitting uh, in the anti-hero, anti-heroism of the protagonist. But Hard Light I'd like to look at. Um, I have an anthology from Saga Press, The Starlit Wood, edited by Dominic, Dominic Parisian and Nava Wolf, uh, which has some terrific stories in it. I've been dipping into that already. And that'll be something I'll be reviewing in, in a while. It's got I'm hoping to in read it. that one. They were going to send me one, but haven't. Oh, it's got Karen Tidbeck, Charlie Jane Anders, Daryl Gregory, Genevieve Valentine, Capital Linty, Garth Nix is in it, Jeffrey Ford is in it. It's just uh, fascinating. Uh, the things that I, I will, since we probably won't talk until after. Uh, I don't know how many people who listen to this thing read my column anyway. I like the new China medieval novel, The Last Days of the New Paris. Uh, I think it raises some interesting issues. It's it's a novel which is about, in part, his lifelong love affair with surrealism, with actual historical surrealism. turns out he knows all sorts of things about the surrealists, including lesser-known women surrealist photographers and painters that usually... So this is... Partly set in a Paris in 1950, in which the Nazi occupation is still going on, but in which, because of some catastrophic event back in 1941, images from surrealist paintings are storming through the city. They've come to life. Um, And for people who um, are familiar with China's own surrealism, you can. this is almost like an index to his imagination, I think. I think it's very... For people who are listening, that's the last days of New Paris. The last days of New Paris. Yeah. Um, I just read the third volume of Joe Walton's philosophical trilogy, uh, the the Thessaly series, which is called Necessity, um, which does a very interesting trick. It's it's not giving anything away for people who might have read the first two. The premise of the series was that the goddess Athena has decided to create Plato's Republic on an island in the Mediterranean, Santorini, by bringing people from all different periods of history to create this ideal republic. Um, and in the second volume, the city is split into 12 cities. The third volume starts off completely on another planet, several light years away, 4,000 years in the future. Uh, 
So what she's doing is playing with the intersection of science. Apart, she's doing three things, I think. One is writing philosophical science fiction, which has become kind of a thing now because the new Ada Palmer novel is very much based in academic philosophy. She's also just pointedly showing off how science fiction and fantasy can work with each other. This is clearly another planet. She's worked out the world building. It's a cold planet. It, people depend on fishing. So it's a science fictional planet, but they were put there by Zeus because Zeus is still the most powerful of all the gods. So that's something. Um, there are, we mentioned the um, um, Joe Abercrombie collection, which I thought was terrific, and there's a terrific collection from uh, Michael Swanwick uh, of, of short fiction, who's another one of these people. And the last thing, which I think we should plug because it will be available to everybody um, before we next talk, is something that you acquired for Tor.com, Kids Johnson's The Dream Quest of Velad Bull. I like that which story. Is, I really like the story, and it's it's one of the things that, um, as a reviewer, I'm glad I finished the review a little bit earlier. You keep thinking about it, and there's more to it. There's more to it than than doing a number on Lovecraft. Um, but there is doing a number on Lovecraft. So it's it, it, it's a smart... Not a smart novella about a woman's life in an imaginary world that, in its particulars, looks like the imaginary worlds of Lovecraft. And it has that, a kind of, I think, exquisitely sweet frustration at the end of it that will never be fulfilled, which is you really want the continuing adventures of the characters. Well, you do, but on the other hand... It has an ending, which I'm so tempted to give away because no, I think no. it's such a perfect ending. It, but the, the ending completely undermines all the Lovecraftian stuff, all the kind of escapist stuff. It's, 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 the last line is just terrific. Um, so uh, that's something I think everybody should watch out for because that will be available on Tor.com when? Never. It's not, a, Never. Uh, it's not for the website. It's for Tor.com oh, Tor Publishing. Tor and it okay. will debut at MidAmericon. Ah, okay. And Kidge will be there. Uh, and we'll be talking to Kidge on our live podcast. We can talk to her about that if we want to. I don't we can know. talk to her about We can talk to Michael Swanwick about his stories as well. So this is what I've been looking at since you're talking about what you're looking at. Okay. I'm halfway through Company Town by Madeline Ashby, which you've already read. Mm -hmm. And whilst I think it's not without its flaws, um, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a really very, very engaging book. Mm -hmm. uh, I have sitting here to read Certain certain Dark Things by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I had really enjoyed her debut novel last year, so I'm looking forward to, it, to this. I am going to be seeing her next week at the Locus Awards. I hope. I've also got a few things stockpiled for my trip to read. I have the new Alistair Reynolds book, Revenger, which mm -hmm. starts really well. I have, and I don't know if you have this, and I should get it to you if you don't, um, Peter S. Beagle's first new novel in many, many years, Summerlong. Summerlong. Just got it in the mail a couple of days ago. Which I read in an earlier edition, well, an earlier version, an earlier draft, six years ago, or seven years ago, mm -hmm. so I'm looking forward to that. And I have Connie Willis's new book, Crosstalk. So I'm looking forward to that. Which is very funny. I've started reading that as well. And hopefully, actually, I'm hoping we can get to maybe chat with Connie about it when we're at World Fan at Wellcon. I that that that's something I would look forward to. Let's try to see if we can do that as well. Because um, I guess that, I mean, 
just to lay out for people sort of the likely timeline of our future discussions, next week you are away traveling, so you and I won't be talking, but I'll be talking to James and to Ian, James Bradley and Ian Mond, on the roundtable about the Madeleine Ashby novel uh, Company Town. Company Town, Company Town, yes. And then you return, but I perfidiously travel away with my family to Europe. And in case you're thinking of breaking into my home, actually, you know, I'll be somebody living here while I'm gone. I feel like I should say that. <laughs> Personal security, Gary. <laughs> Those of us who have to travel 12,000 miles to break into your home are easily discouraged. I figured you would be. And also, frankly, the stuff here, like, it's fine, but it ain't that special, right? So You've got a lot of the same stuff I've got, so let's yeah, face yeah. it, it's not. Um, and then, you know, I'm away for three weekends. I'm like offline for three weekends. Then I'm back from from Italy, and you and I will talk for a while, and there'll be another round table. And then I travel to the States. And hopefully you and I will record four or five podcasts when we're at Mid-American. Mm-hmm. We will be doing Cood Street Live. And I don't know whether we can actually say with whom yet. Do you think, Gary? Um... Well, we can say that people have agreed to, to be on the podcast. What we're going to talk about is uncertain at this point. We've got an idea. I mean, basically what we're hoping is that we'll be talking to Michael Swanwick and Kids mm-hmm. Johnson, and we'll be talking something towards the subject of the art of the short story, shall we say. That's mm-hmm. the sort of space we're talking about. And this will be public, and then it'll be recorded, then it'll be sent out. Uh, we've made a tentative commitment to find a bar, and we'll we'll let you know in one of the future podcasts where we will be for a drink, and whether it's just you and me drinking at the end or a few people come and say hi. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you're a Cood Streeter or a whatever you want to call somebody who likes to podcast. Uh, and then yeah, back on to the rest of the year. And then on to what will eventually be our... Let's see, you and I will see each other in Kansas City, and after that we won't see each other until Helsinki. That will be... Um, I'm looking forward to Helsinki. Oh, I, I, everybody I know is looking forward to Helsinki, and, uh, and and one of the story I was I was thinking because one of the people here, here's something which you can you can you can be a witness to this because um, when we were in this conference in Finland last summer, uh, Stacy Haynes, my partner, and Karen Tidbeck both seemed to be involved or have at one point been involved with Arkham Asylum, and. They, 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 they both told me that at, at, at Helsinki they're going to teach me how to play Arkham Asylum and do it in front of other people. That should be fun for you. I'm not even sure. I, I, it, it's, it's an online role-playing game or something like that, but maybe? Batman and the Joker, yeah. Yeah, okay, right, exactly. So not it turns out... Um, there are a lot of people who know... Well, that's another topic for another podcast. Maybe we can get Karen... To talk about this, the number of people who know about Lovecraft is astonishing. Sylvia Marina Garcia. There's this whole Lovecraft subculture that has really not that much to do with his fiction and yeah. everything to do with his iconography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll uh, see what happens. And of course, and I don't think you're going to join me for this part of it. The, one of the most critical parts, in fact, the most critical part of my trip to Helsinki, of course, is my time in Scotland. Yes, I understand that. And you're that going will be to get- glorious. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, I, I'm figuring I'm going to have to actually factor some time in and violate my golden rule of going to work on Gary. 
which is I'm going to have to probably see something of the place we're going to and go to actually see some Helsinki. There's a lot of gorgeous stuff in Helsinki people have told me about. I don't know. I've never been to Helsinki. So I've we've got to do been the tourists a little bit. And in fact, probably something, in fact, something I know I'm going to shortchange. I'm actually not going to do much tourism in Kansas City. Kansas City has a wonderful art museum, the Nelson Gallery. It's Work certainly it. worth looking at. There's a plaza in Kansas City. Kansas City is a sister city with Toledo, Spain. I grew up 60 miles from Kansas City, so I know this stuff. Have I been in Kansas City in the last 20 years? Okay, don't ask me that, but it's, <laughs> it was a nice city. There. Well, look, look, I mean, my plan currently, as you know, is I'm flying in on the Tuesday evening, afternoon. And maybe we'll have dinner that first night and then work on until Sunday and then take off. You know, I'll be gone by yeah. lunchtime, Sunday. So I won't get out. But we'll have the Hugos. Yeah, have, to, yeah. have you vote? Have you nominated and voted for the Hugos? I've, I've done the Hugos. I've still not done the World Fantasy. Then you've missed it, Gary. It's closed. Oh, okay. I missed that then. Closed on June the 15th. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, dear. It's not, is it June the 15th already? No, it's June the 19th already, Gary. Oh, my <laughs> how about that? Okay, well, I certainly, I certainly did vote for the Hugo Awards, and I certainly, I did. Before we wanted to say, I wanted to say this at the beginning of the podcast. We don't need to dwell on it now. We did see a couple of days ago the finalists for the John W. Campbell Awards, which is a juried award, but it's it's the first list of award nominees that I've seen this year where I've read most of the books. So I feel like I'm not completely out of touch. No. And there's, as there always is, there was the accompanying Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award uh, finalist as well. Yes. Another fine list. Some great, some great short stories on there. I was really encouraged to, to right. see who was there. So check it out. Maybe we'll link to it. Uh, but for now, Gary, I'm going to take some time off and I'll see you in, well, hear you in four weeks, five weeks. Four or five weeks and uh, have a wonderful trip to Tuscany. Roman Florence, Gary. Rome and Florence, absolutely. Say, say hello to, you know, Dante and Michelangelo. Arrivederci, Gary. And Botticelli and all those people. Okay. <laughs> Until the next time. The podcast is on hiatus. <laughs>